Kathy and I felt like we were well prepared to be parents. We wanted to be parents. We thought we knew something about that as Christians, and all of which was true. But that class for us was revolutionary in putting a variety of concepts of parenting together. Um, really helpful for us. I ran into an old friend in the lumber store yesterday. We had a conversation about his life, how things were going. Now, this is a guy we, don't, we haven't been in the same church with for over 20 years, but we still count each other friends. And we'd finished our conversation, and we're walking away from each other. And he came back, he turned, he came back, he paused, and he said, hey, I wanted to thank you for what you and the Helts did for us, which was Growing Kids God's Way probably 25 years ago. His kids are grown. But it had that kind of an impact on him and his family, and so it can have that kind of an impact on yours too. So again, if that's something that is an option for you at all, I would highly recommend it. Okay, you know girls like to tell secrets. So many years ago when our daughters were little girls, very little, uh, lived in a different place here in Topeka, and there were some other kids in the neighborhood, and one of those was a little girl a little older than our girls. And she was much, much more savvy in the ways of the world than our girls were. And some of that was fine, and some of that was not in her best interest. And we were aware of that, but she played at our house. That was good. Loved having her. We tried to monitor, though. Do you know what this is like, parents? You monitor your kids' friends because you're aware that some things might come out of that that wouldn't be the best. Well, closely as we monitored, as much as we tried to be careful with that, uh, the cat came out of the bag, and some secrets were shared. And so with, with this little girl that I will call Big Sister. And so Big Sister has some facts that she is now in possession of that she just doesn't quite know what to do with. And so she comes to mom, to Kathy. And she informs her mom about the facts of life, the birds and the bees, and, and where kids come from and what moms and dads do to get kids. And Kathy, you know, you keep calm, everything's good. Much, this was much sooner. We knew it was coming, right? We knew it. We just hoped to forestall it. The information's fine. Nothing wrong with the information. It's just, do I have the emotional, mental maturity to take that information in in a good way, right? And, and this was far too early. So, but it's there, and you know, you just stay calm. Okay, honey, well, yeah, you know, okay, that's great. God's purpose, that's all good, you know. But, <laughs> here's the thing. Under no circumstance do you tell little sister anything of what you've just learned, right? That's the one thing. You know what's coming next, right? So, a few days later, <laughs> Kath notices little sister moping around. Something's wrong, obviously. And so she says, honey, you know, little sister, what's wrong? She says, well, big sister told me that I would have to touch a man's private parts, and that's not what she said. She knew the anatomical term. Have to touch a man's private parts if I wanted to ever have children. Now, this is a little girl who knew she wanted to grow up and be a mom and have kids. And she is disgusted, and she is abhorred, and she's not actually sure what all this means. She just knows it's very, very bad. And somebody has just wrecked her life. So, yeah, so, so she got the facts of life. There's nothing wrong with the facts of life, right? The whole God's plan, right? Moms and dads, sex, right. We want to say in church as believers, we're good with sex, right? 
This isn't a dirty little secret. This is God's plan. We're good with the information. But for this little girl, it was scandalous. She just like, she didn't have the wherewithal. Emotionally, mentally, developmentally, she had no place to file this stuff. So she's just hanging on. She cannot take it in. It's confusing. It's fearful. Right? It's frightening to her. Now, those little girls grew up. They got over being scandalized. They have kids of their own today. And life is grand, ain't it? But that came developmentally as, as they were able. They were able to take on that, those facts, that knowledge. Nothing wrong with the facts. Nothing wrong with the knowledge. But the difficulty in taking that in at a particular stage of life. So we're going to be talking about an issue this morning that is sometimes similarly scandalous to us, and it's the concept of the uh, sovereignty of God. We're going to be in Job again. This is the second lesson. And if you remember lesson one a couple weeks ago, we sort of did an overview of the book, and we said, here's this blessed guy, this holy guy. He's got everything. God praises him. God allows everything he has to be taken away. He goes through terrible suffering. And we said sometimes for us too, one of our takeaways was, sometimes in the life of the Christian, it's not that you or I have done anything bad, that God allows really difficult, difficult seasons or periods of suffering in our life, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. And that oftentimes it's only in those seasons of acute, sometimes prolonged, usually painful periods of loss and suffering that God actually shows us more of our deficiencies so we can repent of them, come to grips with them, become more fully developed in the life of Christ, which is all good. Painful in the time, all good eventually. So that's what we're going to be looking at. How many here read Job in the last two weeks? Wow, thank you. Uh, You know you can listen to Job too. Uh, is there a link on your study sheet? I think there should be to my favorite version. You can listen to the Bible online. I highly recommend it. I love to read, but what I find is when I listen online, I get things that I don't visually. I'm a visual guy. I usually like to read. But when I hear things, I take them in in a different way. It's very helpful. So if you're exercising, if you're driving down the road, you can listen to the Bible. And the David Suchet is my favorite. It's the NIV, which is not my favorite translation. And it's the... It's the United Kingdom version of that on top of that. But most of the readers of the Bible for me are not good readers. David Suchet is an actor and he just does an outstanding job. So if, you, if Job's a little confusing, listen to it. You don't even have to read it. You can listen to it. So we're going to start. We're kind of going to go backwards in this. I want to get ahead on this morning where we go. We're going to go to the end of Job to see what Job learned. Then we're going to come back to the beginning of Job, Job chapter 1. And then we're going to finish up a little bit in between. So what we're going to be talking about is the sovereignty of God. And that's what Job learns. I hope you have a study sheet. Job 42.2 is sort of the payoff of the book of Job. Now, it deals with lots of challenges. As, as you know, if you went through it already, there's conversations about justice and righteousness. What's fair? What's not fair? What will God do? What will God not do? There's a, there's a lot of wisdom in this literature book this, of wisdom. But this verse is the payoff for Job. Now remember in the book, he's got all kinds of questions and they're struggling with the question, why would God allow the righteous to suffer like this? Now the book never provides an answer to Job for that. We've got some other 
answers. We've talked a little bit about. But this is what Job learned in Job 42.2. The payoff for him was this. I know that you can do all things and that none of your purposes can be thwarted. The lesson Job learned out of that book and out of his experience was what we call the sovereignty of God. God, you can do whatever you want. You have the power to do whatever you want and nothing and no one can prevent you from doing what you want. The sovereignty of God. Got a definition of sovereignty or someone who is sovereign on your study sheet possessing supreme or ultimate power, the, the verb or the, the phrase, the word supreme is from Latin super, above. So the theme here is that God is above every other power. God is super, he's above, he's over everything and everyone else. That, so when we say God's sovereign, that's what we're talking about. And that's what Job concluded. That was the lesson God wanted to get him to. And guys, what we'll find for ourselves personally is this. Just like the facts of life were repugnant for my little girl because she couldn't take them in, this concept of the sovereignty of God is repugnant to Christians when they start figuring out what it means. And we'll talk about this as we develop through this. So think about this for just a second. When we say God is sovereign... God's above everything that happens. Nothing that happens happens outside God's power and will. That's sovereignty. If anything occurs on this earth, it occurs either by God's power actively at work or passively allowing. And it can't be any other way. If God is all-powerful, if he, if he ultimately controls all things, then nothing that happens out, uh, operates or occurs outside his power and ultimately, in some way, his will. We'll get tied up in this, and this is why it's a challenging concept. So think about this for just a second. So God is sovereign over everything, and that means God's sovereign over oceans. So you know when tidal waves sweep in and drown thousands, I'm thinking of a few years ago in the east, southeast, God is sovereign over the ocean waves and the tidal waves and the tsunamis. He's sovereign over that. God is sovereign over land. When you have earthquakes, when the land literally shifts under your feet and wrecks cities and takes lives with it, God is sovereign over those earthquakes. God is sovereign over the earth, the stars, all creation. There's nothing He's not sovereign over. No matter what it is, no matter what you can think of. He's sovereign over animals and over peoples. That's something you see in Job, right? And we'll talk about this later when we get to Job's adversary, Satan. But all that Satan does in controlling things like weather and people actually is under the sovereign hand of God. It has to be, logically. All that occurs under God's sovereignty God's sovereign over the winds and the weather. Thinking of Kansas again, God's sovereign over tornadoes. If a tornado rips through a town and tears a town apart and destroys lives, God is sovereign over that tornado. John Piper got into trouble. He was called into question by a lot of evangelical Christians years ago uh, when a tornado had gone through Oklahoma, and he said God was sovereign over tornadoes, over that tornado, over the destruction it did and over the lives that were lost. 
because people confused what he was saying, that he was sovereign over it. They thought equated to God is, God is uh, after evil, he's after death. That's not what Piper was saying. It's not what we're saying. That tornado cannot occur unless God causes it or God passively allows it. It cannot be otherwise. God's sovereign over angels and demons. We'll look at that near the end. And he's sovereign over life and death. Now, we don't have to be philosophers to say it can't be any other way. Whatever notion you and I have of God's sovereignty, it could not be otherwise. So in the beginning, there is God. There's nothing else. And there's no one else. And God creates everything. He's the creator. He's the prime mover. He's the uncaused cause. Nothing can be greater than God. Nothing he creates can thwart the will of the creator. It's an impossibility. Can't be otherwise. Whatever my concept of God is, no one can thwart the creator's will or power. It's an impossibility. However we struggle through this, God is sovereign and it can't be otherwise. To say that God is sovereign is to say that nothing that happens on this earth to people, places, times, or settings happens outside God's sovereignty, His power, and His will. God must by necessity either directly cause or permissively allow all things and everything that occurs in space and time. We'll, we'll develop this more, but the, the reason people run into trouble with this concept is because things happen that they don't think are right. Things happen that they don't want personally. Things happen that looks like you're saying God ordains evil. God never sins. He's holy and perfect and he can't sin. He can't be other than he is. God isn't the source of evil. And this is why it gets so confusing. God created the heavens and the earth. God's, God's moral. God's perfect. So how can the bad things that God sovereignly allows... How can they be here at all? That's the thing we struggle with. That's where some of the confusion and the fear comes, with, comes in. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So Christians, as we develop our theology and we come, try to come to grips with the sovereignty of God, what we'll typically find is just like my daughters going through the facts of life, it's offensive at first because I don't get it. I don't get how that could be a good thing. But as my understanding and my maturity grows, I actually end up realizing... The sovereignty of God is not a terrifying thing, ultimately. It's not a confusing thing, ultimately. It's actually, ultimately, a very comforting thing. In fact, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, ultimately, what you'll find is you'll just blow in the wind because you won't know who to trust and when. And you don't know if God's worth, worthy of your trust or not if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Okay, on your study sheet, I'm going to look at uh, some of the things that we work through as we try to come to grips with the sovereignty of God. And the first one is just terror or fear. So as we think through the sovereignty of God, we start realizing that every bad thing in the world you can imagine occurs under the sovereignty of God. Now that's potentially a very terrifying thought. Guys, this means all the pain, all the suffering that's ever occurred in the world has occurred under God's sovereign hand. And I don't know what this looks like for you in perspective. Uh, uh, Hitler, 
Stalin, and Mao. They, they directly contributed to the, lives of, uh, the deaths of about 200 million people, let's just say, just in the last century. You know, the book of Daniel says that leaders are ordained by God, God under God's sovereignty. What does it mean that God ordained those guys to be leading to the death of hundreds of millions of people? What do I do with that? As a Christian, what do I do with that? How do I file that under God's sovereign and that's okay? That's, that's fearful stuff, right? That's terrifying. Sickness, accidents, someone dies in a tragic wreck that you know, someone dies of sickness that you care about, and we say, it's God's sovereign will. It's under God's sovereign will. And you know what, what we do? We just emotionally respond to that. What do you mean that's God's will? That that person died, that mom died, that dad died, that child died. What do you mean it's God's will under His sovereign will that these tragedies occurred? And guys, this doesn't get better with time on the earth. It gets worse. It will get worse. The, the atrocities that will be committed on the earth in the days ahead will dwarf anything the earth has seen thus far. That's what God says. That's what Scripture says. Assault, rape, murder, wars, violence, all of those, every one has occurred under the sovereignty of God. So, to the fear or the terror, coming to grips with the fact of life, God is sovereign, the notion of God's sovereignty is terrifying because God is a person and a power I do not control. I can't control it. And God sovereignly allows things I would never allow. And that means He might allow things in my life or yours that I won't, in the moment at least, see any good thing in. God in His sovereignty might allow things in my life or yours that I don't want and wouldn't allow myself. That's potentially terrifying. So fear or terror is one of the normal responses to the sovereignty of God. The other thing is confusion. Job thought he had things figured out, but the depth of his suffering so challenged his notion of the justice and righteousness of God that he wasn't sure God was really sovereign anymore. He wasn't really sure that the judge of all the earth was really still doing right. It confused him. And this is one of the common things you'll find for any of us in times of deep sorrow and loss. We get confused. We don't know which end is up because we can't make sense of why God would allow that. We know God's the power above all powers. It happened. He either caused it or he allowed it. Why would he allow that? I thought he loved me. I thought he loved them. I can see no good thing here. How could God be sovereign? How could he allow this? We want to resolve in our own minds the, the very question of the goodness of God on one hand and the fact of evil being present at all. You know, a couple weeks ago we said the book of Job is not trying to answer the, the why question. Why does God allow suffering? Why is evil present on the earth? We hinted at some things on that. But the existential question of how can a God who's perfectly good, perfectly holy, just, righteous, loving, how can that God create a world in which evil, sin, and death are even a possibility? That's the existential question, and that's the one we get 
hung up on. That's the confusing element. God, how if you are perfect, and you are, how can sin and death even be an option? And guys, I think it's at this point with Job that what we end at the end of the day is we say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I trust you. And that's where this has to lead, by the way, at the level of comfort. You can't get comfort in God's sovereignty if we can't do something with this element of confusion. And I think on this question, I don't think we'll be satisfied on the earth. How did God... When we use the term mystery, a lot of times we use it in a way that the Bible doesn't. Mystery is something God knows and we don't until He shows it to us, tells us. I'm not sure we'll get the answer to this mystery this side of heaven. This is where we struggle the most, the existential question of how could God allow evil. Now think of this for just a second. If we thought the creator of the universe was a wicked thing who delighted in death and sin, and we lived in a world in which sin and death were the norm, we'd have no problem. Because it'd be consistent. It'd be logical. Right? The the, The creation reflects the creator. The creator's wicked and loves sin and death. The world is wicked and has sin and death. It's consistent. What we can't get over is that a God who's perfectly holy and loving, perfect in all that he is and all that he does, creates initially a perfect world before the fall, but somehow allows the fall as a possibility so that after that short duration of perfection in Eden, sin and death now rule the day in all of our lives ever since. We can't get the jump. We don't know what to do with that. And so this notion of the sovereignty of God leaves us confused. The fact of God's sovereignty, like the facts of life to a little girl, can bring real fear and real confusion. In fact, I expect when you're dealing with somebody, especially a new Christian or a child who's coming to grips with things, my expectation would be that you would go through these stages of fear and confusion and perhaps even anger. We're not talking about that here this morning. Anger related to this before they will ever get to the notion that God's sovereignty is actually a doctrine that understood and embraced uh, is a source of more comfort than you'll get anyplace else. In fact, you'll miss a significant element of the comfort available to us as believers today if we don't end up resting at the end of the day that God's sovereignty is a very good thing and that we can rest in it even, and perhaps especially, when the why questions we have about what God has caused or allowed aren't answered. That God's sovereignty is actually a, a comforter we can get under and feel secure in, even if we don't know why he's allowing a particular thing or suffering. So, in Job's book, in his story, he never gets the why questions answered, but he ends at the notion of the sovereignty of God. And then his life goes on. Whatever else God wanted Job to know, God wanted him to know, I'm God, you're not. I do whatever I want, and nothing and no one can stop me. And Job gets that. And that's what he says. That's his conclusion. And then God sovereignly chooses to bless Job again. God's sovereign will. That's what Job came away with. If you say, uh, for us today, how can I rest in the sovereignty of God knowing that there's sin and death in the world by God's allowance? Knowing that my life, your life, we, we could be upended on the way home today. 
knowing that God could allow things in my life or yours or in the lives of people I love and care about that I would never allow. How can the sovereignty of God comfort me when these things come home? That was Job's challenge, and it's your challenge and mine too. And I'd walk through a few of these this way. The sovereignty of God should comfort us as it did Job ultimately because we know some things. And guys, this is one of the things on theology and doctrine. If you say theology to someone or doctrine and their eyes glaze over, like some of yours are now, that's, um, it's, it sounds like, oh, now we're getting into the realm of what's really boring and necessitary and who cares. This is the thing, though. Doctrine and theology, they are the guardrails on your life and mine. And if you don't know what you believe, if you don't know the truth of God and His Word, what you'll find is you'll wreck. Because life will come along and your theology, what you know and believe, won't be adequate for what occurs in your life. We want to know what God says is true. And doctrine and theology are just things that are true. We want doctrine and we want to know and grasp and rest in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God is good, and He's always good, and He he can never be less than good. You can rest in that. It doesn't matter if you figure out what's going on, why it's going on. You know, and it can never be otherwise, God's good. God's loving, He can never be less than loving. We talk about the immutability of God. God can never change. That's part of His sovereignty. You know that's a good thing? He is so perfect that if we could see Him as He really is, we wouldn't want him to change in one little way. And whatever he does, he does for his own glory, a demonstration of his own perfections. And guys, a perfect God displaying his own perfections can only be a good thing. A diamond seen, its facet seen in one shade of light and another, is never less than a good thing. It reveals its own perfections. Whatever God does, everything he does reveals his perfections. To say that he's sovereign and he's working all things to the purposes of his own counsels, this cannot be anything less than a good thing. God showing his perfections is a good thing. For us too as believers, God's sovereignty is a good thing because he's not just God, he's my father. When we talk to our little girls, they couldn't understand this whole thing about sex and the facts of life. It just was not. But you know what? They knew mom and dad. And so when mom and dad say, honey, it's okay. You'll get this later. You don't understand this now. That's okay. It'll make sense later. They, they haven't filed the facts of life that they weren't ready for. But what do they know? Mom and dad love me. And they said it'll be okay. That's comfort in the sovereignty of God. I don't understand, Lord, but I know who you are. Another thing from Romans 8, God says, that whatever occurs in your life and mine, in the lives of his children, no matter how drastically bad, he says that he'll turn it around and he'll end up using it in your life and mine in a way that's good. He'll bless us through things that were meant to cause us harm by others. You can ultimately rest in the sovereignty of God when God is your father and he says, Junior, whatever happens, I'll turn it around so that it blesses you. This is, the, this is the lesson of the story of Joseph. Other people meant something for evil and God meant it for good. doesn't mean we don't have pain or sorrow or loss or confusion or fear in the process. But we rest in the knowledge that God will use whatever occurs in our life for our good and for his glory.
The last thing, and we won't develop this much this morning for time's sake. One of the things, it doesn't answer why God allows sin and suffering and death uh, in the world at all or in your life and mine. Um, But one thing I rest in is this. You, You ever talk to someone about the gospel, about Christ, and essentially they'll say something like this. Um, I don't believe in that God or I don't want that God because of what he allowed to happen. had a conversation with a guy like this just this last week. And it's not that I can necessarily comfort their sense of loss or hurt or injustice or whatever, but what I do say is this. Uh, You ultimately have no gripe against God. You ultimately have no grounds of complaint against God. And I say that because God incarnated himself, became one of us, came and lived on this earth just like us, tempted all the ways we were, suffered on the cross for your sins and mine, sins he did not commit. Guys, he suffered loneliness in a way. His suffering of sin on the cross was such a way you and I would never know. We can't. We don't have the capacity to know. He was alone on the cross in a way you will never feel alone because you can't, because your, your ability and mind to feel emotion is not as great as his. No one can ever accuse God of wrong because God suffered for the sins of the world. Whatever you and I struggle with on the sovereignty of God, the gospel is the answer at the end of the day for why I can't make a valid argument against God. God has come to the world that's now in sin and death. He's lived through it. He's suffered through it. He's experienced it. And then he pays for the sins he never committed. God did that. We can't accuse him of any wrongdoing. God He couldn't do wrong anyway. But the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, is the exclamation point on not only the notion of God's sovereignty, but his love, his mercy, his justice, whatever you think of, the cross is the ultimate explanation or apologetic to anything I have against God's notion of sovereignty or what he allows. Now, if you and I sit here this morning and you say, I get it, the sovereignty of God is sovereign. I get it. I'm, I'm there. You know, Job thought he knew about God's sovereignty. Do you remember that? What did he say in chapter 1? He's got the world by the tail. He's got everything. And then he loses everything. And what does he say? He sort of says, God's sovereign. He says, God gave. And then God took away. God's sovereign. He can do that, right? He does that twice. He's sovereign. If you read Job, and especially in chapter 12, you know what Job affirms in Job chapter 12? He says, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) But did he really believe that? He really didn't. He actually didn't. And that's what the suffering displays. So we'll talk about Job's failure later, but what does he ultimately do, and what does God pin him down for? So initially he says Job's blameless, but what... What, how does Job sin as the story goes on? What does Job end up doing? He basically says, God, I'm more righteous than you. He accuses God of being less than just and God's sovereign will of somehow missing the mark. He says, God, you're sovereign, and I'm good with that. That's where he starts. But at the end, he says, no, but you're not just, you're not fair. I have the measure. I am the measure of justice and righteousness, God. You're not. And in your sovereignty, you've done wrong. 
So through the conversations with his friends and the arguments, and after God reproves him, he says what he said before, but he knows it in a way he didn't before. He thought God was sovereign until God allowed things in his life he didn't want and didn't like and didn't think God was fair. And then he says, not so much. And guys, that's what you'll find for yourself. And that's what I'll find. I'll say, God, it's okay. You're God. You're love. Jesus died. And I'll feel that way until God does something that I don't want. And then I say, let's rethink this. Why don't you make me sovereign for just a moment? And I'll show you how to do this right. And I'll talk and I'll pray and I'll accuse until I end up where Job ended up. That I'll learn, God, you're sovereign and I'm not. You're God. You can do whatever you want. And I can't thwart your will. And by the way, at the end of the day, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. That's what Job learned. It's also, guys, it's what angels always knew. We're coming up this backwards this morning. So we started chapter 42, come back to verse, verses in chapter 1 for just a minute. Job learned the payoff in the book of Job for Job is the sovereignty of God. The angels didn't need that lesson because they already knew God was sovereign. And you see this in the opening of this book. After God describes Job in his life, he says this, starting verse 6, chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, well, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? None like him on the earth, blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Satan responds, the Lord, and said, does Job fear God for no reason? He, he, he's living this way because of all that you give him. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now guys, all of that passage says God is sovereign. Everything there says God is sovereign. When it says that the sons of God presented themselves, the thought is this. God is in heaven. He's on his throne. And he's, he subpoenaed everybody he wants at his heavenly court. That means Satan and the sons of God here who are angels, at least fallen ones, Perhaps holy angels as well. You'll see a story just like this in the life of the prophet Micaiah. Um, I think during the life of Jeremiah, I won't be able to give you the reference now. Same thing. There's a heavenly courtroom. And God's in it. And He's talking to angels. And some of them there are demons. They're fallen angels. In this heavenly court, Satan is there because God summoned him. Who's in charge? God's in charge. It's His court. Why does Satan show up? Because he has to. Who's, who's running this show? It's not Satan, it's God. Who points Job out to Satan? God points him out. Who instigates everything that follows in Job's life? It's not Satan. It's God. Who tells Satan what he may and may not do in the life of Job? God again. You see, from the start, you're, we're supposed to see 
God is sovereignly running the show in every aspect here. God calls, the angels respond. Satan makes an accusation. God says, you can do this, you can't do that. Everything that's going on there shows, displays God's sovereignty. When we read Job's story and think Satan's in charge, we've made a mistake from chapter 1. He's never in charge. The angels have always known that God is sovereign. He is the power above every power. There's no confusion there. Now, I do think there's a kind of insanity. Does Satan know the end of the story? Has he read the Bible? He's read the Bible. And I think somehow, you know, the further you go in darkness, in sin, the more rationality you lose. You really do. And as sharp as he is in so many ways, Scripture says he's still going to mount armies to come against God as if he could win. And I think there's a kind of irrationality there that comes from simply denying the truth. But there's, in his mind, he knows I can only do what God allows me to do. Job learned God was sovereign. The angels always knew God was sovereign. That it was his will they were responding to. Satan can do no more against us. By the way, this is, a com- this is part of the comfort of uh, God's sovereignty. We, we might say something like, in fact, you can read in the New Testament, um, Satan oppressing someone, you know, Jesus delivering someone from demons, and you say God's sovereignty allowed the demon to be present in that person, and then God's power delivered them. It's always God's sovereignty at work. It, whatever, whatever phase of life or, or point in time that you're looking at someone suffering or what's going on in the, in the world, it's always God's sovereignty that's at work. That's what Job learned, and it's what, say, it's what Satan and the angels, fallen and holy, knew. And it's actually what you and I need to come down to as well. Um, what are you going to do if the bottom falls out of your life? And it could happen. If the bottom falls out of your life, how do you comfort yourself? Now, if we get God's sovereignty the way Job does in chapter 42, we could say with him in chapter 1, you're God, you give and you take. I have no argument. Guys, especially as Christians, we should be able to say this. Jesus, you took on my sins. You can do whatever you want. You've redeemed me. You can do whatever you want. You've never wronged me. You can't wrong me. You'll never wrong me. Or God, I'm your child. I'll never be less than your child. Whatever I suffer on the earth, I suffer at your pleasure, and somehow you love me through that. I don't know what that looks like, but I trust you. This is the lesson you and I need to learn as well. In God's sovereignty in our life, when pain and suffering, loss, whatever it is, comes into play, we can ask and we can pray honestly, Lord, show me what your comfort here looks like. You know, there's a story in the Gospels where there's a guy whose son is demonized. Now, the, the, the gospel has several stories of Jesus casting out demons. It's what he did. This story, though, when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the father is there with his son. The father says to Jesus, help my son if you can. And Jesus says, what do you mean if? And the father replies, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, the story could have just said, Jesus cast a demon out of a boy. Why do you think he includes the father? Because we need to hear that, right? Do you know how many times I thought that guy 
And I've prayed, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm not all the way there. We can pray that about God's sovereignty when the bottom falls out. Lord, I know you're good. I know you love me. I don't see how this thing works together. Help me trust you. I trust you. Help me trust you more. We need to come to grips with God's sovereignty. Now, the world today, when you talk about God and what God looks like, this isn't just the world that doesn't believe in Jesus. This is Christianity as well. There are surveys being taken today that show that lots and lots of people will say they are spiritual, but they are not religious. And, and by that they mean God is God as I make him out to be. And really, we just say biblically, this is idolatry. But we're refashioning God after our own image because we don't know what to do with the real God. The real God is sovereign, and we don't know what to make of the world around us and what he causes and what he allows. And so we say, that's not really God. I'll tell you what God's like. God's my God. He's loving, and that's all he is. The Bible says, well, he is all loving, but he's also all just. The sovereignty of God, guys, it puts us in our place. And God wants us to be able to say with Job at the end of his story, you're God and I'm not. And I can live with that. And we need to wind down on the sovereignty of God. And this is the reason, if for no others, and this is the last thing on your study sheet, if you believe in a God that's not absolutely sovereign, you do not believe in God. If you believe anyone or anything is greater than God, you do not believe in the God of the Bible and you do not believe in Jesus because the God of the Bible is the God of everything and every power in heaven and earth answers to him. He causes or allows all things and if that's not your God, you don't know God. Father, thanks that you do all things well and even when we don't know how to put the pieces of all this together, God, help us to trust you. We say today we trust you, Lord Jesus. We say today we believe in you. And we know that can be challenged tomorrow by a million things. God, help us with that Father in the Gospel to say, Lord, we trust. Help us where we haven't trusted you yet. Lord, we believe. Help us where that belief hasn't reached our heart fully. Lord, you are God. And with Job, we want to rest in the knowledge that you're sovereign. And that's a good thing. In Jesus' name, amen.